Revelation chapter 16, verse 19. We ready to go? Not yet. That is okay. Now we're ready. All right, Revelation chapter 16, verse 19. It says, In the great city which was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, dear Lord God, just uh, thank you for this evening. Lord, thank you for the book. Uh, Lord, I pray you'd open up uh, to us here tonight, God, to learn what it is that you'd have for us, Lord. And just uh, thank you for being good to us. Lord, we've gotten a, a lot of good preaching over the last couple of weeks. And uh, Lord, just, uh, I appreciate you showing up. Lord, you said wherever two or more are ga gathered in your name, you'd be in the midst of them. Uh, Lord, it's, uh, uh, it's a great thing, uh, Lord, to be where you are and uh, to have you here. And Lord, I pray that you'd uh, bless your folks. Lord, help us to be a blessing to you. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So uh, kind of picking up where we left off last week. Of course, you're, you're looking at Babylon here. It's in the tribulation, and it's fallen. It says, And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nation fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance. Uh, and the reasons that you've been taught that the book of Revelation contains four simultaneous accounts of the tribulation uh, from different aspects now becomes what should be apparent by, the, uh, by this presentation of this specific case. Um, and what you were just told is that Babylon is going to be destroyed. And that takes place in Revelation chapter 18, verse 2. I'll take you over there real quick. Revelation 18, 2. It says, And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and a hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Uh, but you were already told, you were told that Babylon fell back in Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. In 14:8, it says, uh, And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So you see that it fell in 14. Uh, you see it falling in 18. Uh, you know, and you see it falling in 16. All right, so uh, you are told that it's falling in Revelation chapter 16, verse 19. And that's perfect proof that these are three simultaneous accounts and not one uh, chronological set following one another. I'll give you, a, I'll give you an example. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not dealing with Babylon, but just how the Lord does things and how he'll tell you, he'll show you a complete story and then he'll go back and then fill in the details. Uh, go, if you will, over to Genesis 32. This is where we were Sunday morning, but I'll, I'll show it to you here. It's real simple, but it's just, you've got to keep in mind that whenever you're reading the Bible, uh, the Lord doesn't give you everything chronologically. Case in point to that is easily uh, your major prophets and your minor prophets. Uh, I don't know about you, but it, was, it took entirely too long for me to figure out that uh, your minor prophets are running parallel to your major prophets, right? That your, your Bible is organized, not chronologically. It is organized chronologically, but only up to a point, and then it starts back over again. So that some of the events that you've already read are being dealt with in the minor prophets, the same that were contemporaries with your major prophets. So whenever you're reading uh, Obadiah and and Nahum and all of these guys over here in the minor end, they were contemporaries with guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah and some of those events, right? If you want to know chronologically the last events in your Bible, 
as far as the Old Testament goes, it's actually Ezra and Nehemiah. And, uh, and you, so you'd really have Daniel and then the events of Ezra and Nehemiah because Daniel is coming up out of captivity. He goes into captivity and comes out. Ezra is coming out of captivity uh, to help rebuild the city, and Nahum comes out of captivity to rebuild the wall. But you got to keep in mind, well, Malachi is the last book of my Old Testament. Yeah, he's a contemporary with these guys. So the Lord doesn't necessarily set the whole thing up chronologically, uh, and that's why you'll notice if you read, you know, uh, you read First and Second Kings, and then it seems like, well, I read First and Second Chronicles, and that seems like it's duplicating a bunch of stuff that I just read over here, and sometimes First and Second Samuel, right? It's Look, if you will, here at Genesis chapter 32. This is probably the easiest example I can give you shortly. Uh, and this would be uh, verse 24. All right, verse 24 of uh, Genesis 32. It says, Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. That is the umbrella verse, right? That covers the overarching event from he wrestled with him until the breaking, you know, he met met this guy, there wrestled he with a man until the breaking of the day. Right? Now look at verse 25. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hall of his thigh, and the hall of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaketh. So what verses 25 and 26 are doing is going back and giving you finer details that weren't covered in verse 24. Does that make sense? He's saying, okay. He wrestled with this guy till the break of the day. And when, you know, and now we're going to zoom in and we're going to look at exactly what was said throughout that, what happened in the middle of the night, what happened in the morning, uh, who said what and when. Does that kind of make sense? And so he'll say, this is the event that happened. Now let's go back and talk about the specifics. Now, uh, like we've covered over here in the book of Revelation, you have four accounts of the tribulation, just the same way that you have four accounts of the gospel, Right? Right? It, it's no different than whenever you read Matthew, right? and you read all through the life of Christ, and then you read Mark. What did you do? Well, you went back through and you, let, you, read, the, you read the life of Christ again, but from a different perspective. Right? When you read the book of Matthew, you saw Jesus Christ as king. It's told from a taxpayer, from a government official. Right? And then you read it from the book of Mark, and you read about Jesus Christ as a servant. Different perspective. Then you read about uh, Jesus Christ in the book of Luke as a man because Luke is a physician. And then you read about uh, Jesus Christ as God in the book of John. Four different perspectives, but you didn't read four different Jesuses. So whenever you're looking at 18.2, in 16.9 of Revelation, it's not Babylon falling three different times. It's three different accounts so far of Babylon falling. That hopefully makes sense to you. Okay. Now, I can fall down multiple times in a day, but that's not what we're talking about here. Okay? But, but it's a perfect proof of three simultaneous accounts and not one chronological falling after another. Uh, in the destruction of Babylon under the Antichrist, which is Revelation 12 through 14, Babylon falls in Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. In the account given of the destruction under the vials and the wrath being poured out, the destruction is mentioned in 16.9. Then the details of the event are found in Revelation chapter 17 through 18. And you'll notice that so far in the account of the vials, which is where we're at, the second coming of Christ has not yet occurred, which means the fall of Babylon happens before Christ comes back. 
right? So again, all of that ought to reset some thinking or you hear somebody talk about, you know, oh, I think Christ came back and I don't, I'm trying to remember which group it was that, think that, that thinks that Christ already came back. Well, were you there? <laughs> what, what, what group is is it Church of Christ or the, well, I don't know. That's the, all millennials don't believe that he's coming back. So anyway, but uh, the, Bible's, the Bible has uh, mentioned the gathering together of the troops. We read that in 16, uh, 13 through 16. I'll read it again. It says, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come up out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Uh, for they are the spirits of devils working miracles going, uh, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them into the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So you're told there what the motivations and what the task at hand is for these devils. They're there to get everybody together in one spot, right? Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I hate to liken that to myself. I feel a little bit like, you know, Barney's starting to sing, and I go out there and try to gather in all the troops, get them all into the sanctuary in one spot. You don't want to be likened to the devils. But uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, but he says here, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked uh, and they see his shame. All right. Um, the the post-tribulation rapture you have in Revelation chapter 16, verse 15. That's Christ coming uh, as a thief for those tribulation saints. He comes as a thief. Now, he doesn't come as a thief for the bride, for the church. Uh, he, doesn't he doesn't steal you. The reason that he comes as a thief in a tribulation and not, uh, not for the church is because the church is his. Amen. Right? Um, and... And you got to keep in mind in the tribulation, those folks can lose their salvation. So, um, and, and the tribulation saints are not his bride. That's a different thing altogether. All right. So uh, the destruction of Babylon happens in 1619, and then the second advent takes place. You say, where does it take place as far as all this is concerned? Well, it takes place in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Revelation chapter 19 is one of my one of my favorite places to read because it ought to stir you a little bit. Um, I, can't, uh, I can't hardly read Revelation 19, uh, especially when you start getting down to like verse 16. As you read down through all that stuff and you're reading about Christ coming back, you, ought, you have to, like, I don't, if you're at home reading it, you ought to read it out loud and raise your voice a little bit. It says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Now, one of the most common mistakes I see in people studying the book of Revelation is they get that white horse rider confused with the, the white horse rider of, uh, of uh, Revelation chapter 6. And, you know, you've been here. You ought to know the differences. Um, Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sought upon him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. But the problem is, is that this guy has a bow but no arrows. Uh, he's, um, he's the Antichrist. He shows up first uh, claiming peace, peace when there is no peace. So he, he conquers, but um, it's different than in verse 11. Uh, you'll notice if you read verse 11, uh, it says, I saw heaven and behold a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Uh, his eyes were as a flame of fire, his head were many crowns, and had a name written on it that no man knew but he himself. See, uh, the same people that say that the white horse rider of chapter 6 
are going to be the same ones that make the mistake of thinking that that is Jesus Christ and worshiping him as Christ. And what they're going to get themselves into is a position where they're worshiping the devil thinking they're worshiping Christ. They're, they're going to mistake the two. Uh, let me keep going here. Uh, he was clothed, this is verse 13, with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Uh, and the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. Well, you don't see that in verse 2 of chapter 6, right? The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, here's the, the easy, if you just keep reading, you'll usually find out the difference. All right, in Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, what did that white horse rider have? He had a bow, all right? In verse 15, you find out what this white horse rider has. And out of his mouth goeth what? A sharp sword. So this guy's got a sword. The other guy has a bow. Now, I don't mean to offend anybody that enjoys the, uh, the hunting practice of going out with a bow, but nearly every time that you find a bow hunter in the Bible, he's a type of the Antichrist. Do with that what you will. <laughs> I got kids with nerf bows and all that kind of stuff, but uh, Esau, uh, Esau was a hunter. Nimrod, the Bible says, was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Uh, these guys went out with, you know, bows and all that, and you see that it's connected with the Antichrist. So you ought to always perk up. You're like, okay, here's a, here's a bowman. Uh, and you almost always recognize the Lord uses that as an indicator. So anyway, so that, that's the great thing about the Bible is that if you just keep reading, like I said in chapter 19, verse 15, Revelation chapter 19, verse 15 clearly defines a difference between the two white horse riders by what they have. Go ahead. Very good. Yes. Revelation chapter 6. Uh, and he that sat upon him had a bow and a crown. And in chapter 19, we saw that, uh, and in Revelation chapter 19, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, let me see if I can find a verse here. Yes. Verse 12. His eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. That's the reason we don't change the Word of God, and it's the reason we don't read other versions around here. Because it's real easy to take a letter off of something uh, and make both of them either have one crown or both of them have many crowns. And somebody says, well, what's the big difference? They're the same guy. Well, you wouldn't know that they're not the same guy, except you changed it. And so you can be careful with that stuff. All right. So Revelation chapter 17 through 18 is a description of Revelation chapter 16, verse 19. So the city is Babylon. It's not Jerusalem. And you say, well, there's, where's Babylon today? It's Rome. That's, that's Babylon. There's no question about it. Uh, even the Roman Catholic Church agrees that Rome is Babylon, and Babylon is Rome. <laughs> now, what they'll say to try to defend themselves is, well, that's, that, that was pagan Babylon, not papal Babylon. And their dates are all wrong. It's absolutely uh, papal Babylon. Otherwise, you wouldn't have, uh, you wouldn't have John being uh, marveling at what uh, Babylon is doing when it's doing it. All right, let's come back over to Revelation chapter 16, verses 20 through 21. All right, Revelation chapter 16, verse 20 and 21. It says, And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Now, like I said before, the Lord doesn't mince 
uh, he doesn't uh, uh, embellish. If he says that it, this hail was exceeding great, then it was unlike any hail that's ever fallen on earth before. Uh, that plague of hailstones comes down with stones weighing, uh, if you talk about a talent apiece, that comes out to about an eight pound hailstone. Now, I imagine it wasn't just one, <laughs> All right? Can you, you know, listen, it, you'd have your, if you knew that was coming, you'd get your insurance paid up on your vehicle there. <laughs> and I dare say that that's gonna be a hailstorm just flat total, whatever it is that you've got sitting out. Go ahead. Yep, a, a split mall head is eight pounds. So yeah, imagine just what that would do. Uh, eight pounds a piece. Um, well, we went, uh, we took the kids, uh, took the kids bowling the other day. And um, a lot of eight pound bowling balls sitting over there. So, and you gotta remember, I mean, granted, I, I'd be interested, it'd be an interesting experiment to see um, how big an eight-pound ball of ice is, right? And that's something you could probably kind of figure out. A gallon of milk weighs eight pounds. Yeah. So you're looking about a foot square. Yeah. So probably about, probably about the size of a bowling ball that weighs eight pounds. <laughs> that, that's probably about what it is. Go ahead. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to argue. I'm like, how'd they know it's a hundred pounds? And then I went to this and it just said the talent. And I'm like, it says right in there, a hundred. A hundred pounds. Yeah, I'd have to go and look, um, but I'm pretty sure it's, it's closer to eight pounds. But, uh, but. And, and it's real easy for me to say, yeah, they're wrong. That's the reason they're in all those other versions. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, uh, I could probably, give me time, I'll probably sit down and figure, you know, figure out where they're getting that from, you know, in terms of where they're measuring a talent from and, or, or what they're doing there. But, uh, but According to Wikipedia, it's 129 pounds. No, I don't care. <laughs> But uh, if you are a bit skeptical, even hearing about an eight-pound rather than a 120-pound thing of hail, uh, I could remind you that there are accounts of uh, hailstones falling at, uh, I'll probably pronounce it wrong, it's uh, Le Aigle, France, in Normandy, uh, on April 26, 1803, where some, some weighed in about that. Um, uh, or you can read the reports of uh, on the Bikini Atoll bomb test, right, whenever they're testing uh, out nuclear bombs. Uh, there was a great deal of damage that was caused to the armor-plated vehicles that were uh, bombed as an experiment uh, that was done by falling hailstones. So the, they bombed the island, but, you know, you get the great big mushroom cloud, and you think, oh, it's just a great big mushroom cloud. N no, it created hail. And uh, the atom bomb changed the atmosphere, and hailstones came uh, down weighing what they said between 10 and 20 pounds, uh, and dented the armor plate on the decks of those ships. That's how bad it was. And they didn't uh, let too much of that information out to the public because it indicated that their, uh, their atomic experiments 
in the air cause changes in the weather. And uh, that's the last thing that the government wanted to have the farmers in the United States finding out. And if your weather gets all off kilter in the next 10 to 15 years, could be due to atmospheric disturbances caused by radiation and atomic bomb fallouts and explosions and tests. Just I'm going to stick with eight pounds. A hundred and pounds. Yeah, this would not to say that they're. I don't know. I'd, I'd have to go and look, and so like I'll be a jerk for now and, and stand firm on eight pounds. <laughs> My only other question would be this is, well, a, a talent, a, a talent is a measurement of money, and by all rights in the Bible, pounds are a measurement of money. So I'm not saying that they're doing this, but it very likely could be that a talent is worth 100 pounds. How much is the little talent? Is it eight pounds? <laughs> and the great talent's a hundred pounds. So. Well, and there's two different. There's a gold talent, a Hebrew gold talent, and then there's a Hebrew silver talent. And the silver talent weighs like 13 pounds, 14 pounds. The gold talent could easily weigh I mean, I was trying to make it even a little bit better, saying it was eight pounds, and you guys are like, no, it's way worse than that. It's a 100-pound bowling ball coming down over. Eight or 130. It's exceeding great. It's exceeding great. <laughs> it's some big hail, folks. <laughs> no, no, it's good. I like the conversation. Yeah, yes. Yeah, 100 pounds. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of that that um, gets into, like, in terms of like how specific, how how close to the actual measurement you can get. So things like cubits and reeds, in terms of like how accurate you can be with some of those things. So I'm sure that there is some discrepancy between how much a talent weighed versus how much a talent was worth. Uh, great talent versus a little talent. You know, some, some things going, in any case, right, because your salvation is not dependent upon how big the hailstones were or are or going to be, right? It, it's going to be a bad storm, and we can kind of laugh about it. Aren't you glad you're not going to be there? I'm, I don't want to be there for that. I have a hard enough time convincing Caitlin to let me park the truck in the shop if I know there's going to be hail. So it's like, for sure, if we know there's going to be a or a hundred pound... Now, granted, I think if that was the case, shop building's not going to do a whole lot to uh, protect the truck. So I think, I think they just go straight through that tin roof. So uh, you don't have a whole lot of hope of, yeah, I, yeah, that's where you've got those guys living underground. 
you know, and under the water and all the other stuff that they got going on uh, during that. But this hail is uh, found in the Old Testament in the Battle of Joshua that some uh, similar happens. Go to Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10, verse 8. Now, I like how this verse starts in verse 8, because it's a, it's a good verse to read before you read the rest of it, and then keep in mind that the Lord that is speaking there is your Lord. Okay? And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them into thine hand, there shall not a man of them stand before thee. Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly and went up from Gilgal all night. And the Lord discomfited them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter to Gibeon and chased them along the way that goeth up to Bethoron and smote them to Azekah unto Makeda. I'm trying to see if it goes. Yeah, there it is. Verse 11. Sorry. Um, and it came to pass as they fled from before Israel and were in going down to Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them to Azekah, and they died. They were, uh, they were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. And that kind of gives you a little bit, you know, start in verse 8, the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear him not. You know, I can take care of it. I would dare say that the Lord did not need Joshua or the children of Israel to do anything. I got this. You know, I'm going to throw rocks at them. <laughs> like David. Little, Heavy rocks. Little, yes. Boulders. <laughs> I've got this. And uh, just for a good preaching moment to spiritualize it for you, whenever it comes to your problems, as far as, you know, you being in Christ, the Lord's got it. All right? If the Lord can throw stones down and take out, these guys, he doesn't need Joshua's help. He doesn't need the children of Israel's help. And when it comes to some of your problems, just quite honestly, he doesn't need your help. In fact, sometimes, I'm not saying every time, but I'm saying sometimes whenever it's something that really the Lord wants to take care of, you're best just to get out of the way. Just let him take care of it. You know, sometimes we just, man, we, we just want to be so hands-on. We, I wonder how many of those people the Lord couldn't kill because there was a child of Israel right there. It's like, dude, I want to, would you get out of the way? Like, I've got a, I've got a bead on this guy, and if you would move, I could hit him with the rock. <laughs> you know, I'd hit him with the hail. <laughs> but uh, we get in the way. We get in the way. All right. And uh, so that indicates clearly that the book of Joshua is a picture of the second coming of Jesus Christ. The word Joshua means Jesus. The name Joshua in Hebrew means Jehovah saves. Um, and I, I like uh, reading the Lord showing up. I want to say it's in chapter 2. This is one of my favorites. I say that all the time. Maybe it doesn't mean anything now. Maybe I think it might be chapter, no, it's chapter 5. Chapter 5, right around verse 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? It's like me asking mom when we were kids, are we going to go to McDonald's or Burger King? And she said the same thing that he said, Nay. <laughs> nope. 
You know, uh, Joshua asks him a question, are you, for, are you for me or are you for the guys that we're against? Because we kind of tend to think, you know, the Lord is either for me or he's against me. And he said, nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord, am I now come? And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, what saith my Lord unto his servants? That's the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament right there. You know how you know? Because he doesn't rebuke Joshua's worship. And so anytime you find an angel of the Lord and somebody meets with him and somebody gets down and worships and the angel says, get up, you know, that's an angel of the Lord. But here, this is Jesus Christ in the Old Testament showing up as the angel of the Lord because he doesn't tell the guy to get up. In fact, uh, what you have there, I know I'm off track here a little bit, but this is the Lord's approval of Joshua and meets with him uh, the same way he meets with Moses. Uh, I don't know if you ever picked up on it whenever you read about the burning bush, but if you'll notice that whenever it's talking about the burning bush, it says that that was the angel of the Lord. It's not just a burning bush talking to a guy. Notice verse 15, And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoes from off thy foot, for the place wherein thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Where else has that happened? Moses in the burning bush, right, with the angel of the Lord, who was Jesus Christ manifest in the Old Testament. So anyway... But um, just to see that second coming of Jesus Christ pictured there uh, in, um, uh, in the book of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 10, you have the Lord Jesus Christ right there in, uh, in Joshua chapter 5. Okay, uh, Coming back uh, to where we were in Revelation chapter 16, 20 through 21, uh, let's see, the end, end portion of verse 21 it says, And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, uh, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. You might be right. It might have been a 100-pound ball. I don't know. It says it's exceeding great. Um, but these folks blaspheme. So there's some verses to look at here. Uh, go to Psalms chapter 18, verse 3. And we'll look at uh, some of this blasphemy. Psalms chapter 18, verse 3. And uh, you got a picture here of the children of Israel, uh, these tribulation saints. Or sorry, Psalms chapter 18, verse 3. And I will call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. Go to Leviticus 24, 16. I'm going to give them to you quick. So if you don't get there, that's fine. Leviticus 24, 16. And he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death. Well, that's a verse. I, I, it's like, I'll quote that verse. <laughs> Say, why is that? Because, man, uh, I, don't, I don't know how much you get out, but I get about sick of it, don't you? And uh, you don't have to get out to hear it. In fact, you keep your television set on, you'll hear it more than you ever want to. He and he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord... He shall surely be put to death. Man, if America lived in the Old Testament today, there'd be hardly anybody walking around. And all the congregations shall certainly stone him. And Now look at that. What happens to somebody who blasphemes God? What, what do they get hit with? Stones. Interesting. What's the Lord doing over here in Revelation chapter 16, verse 21? He's taking a bunch of blasphemers and he's stoning them. All right, come back over here, uh, come back to verse 16. And shall certainly stone him, 
as well the stranger as he that is born in the land when he blasphemeth the name of the Lord shall be put to death. And so the Lord says, listen, because uh, when you're in the tribulation, the tribulation puts you back uh, under a kingdom of heaven position where it's faith in Jesus Christ and keep the commandments. Well, what is Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16? That's a commandment of what you're to do with a blasphemer. And so in the tribulation, you're back under an Old Testament law where it's faith and works. And so the Lord says, you know what? I understand that you probably can't. There's too many of these guys running around. And he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to go ahead and take care of fulfilling the law of Leviticus 24, 16. I'm going to take these blasphemers and I'm going to stone them. All right. Go to Revelation chapter 11, verse 19. Revelation chapter 11, 19, and the temple of God was open in heaven, and there was seen in the temple the Ark of His Testament. That tells you that, uh, you know, your Indiana Jones movies are all wrong. And there was lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake, and look at that, and great hail. Great hail. All right, Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 9. I imagine the tribulation saints thought it was pretty great. You know why? Because these guys that are blaspheming God, you know what they're doing? They're rounding people up and cutting their heads off. I, I think it'd be pretty great too. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Say it's not very Christian of you. Well, it's biblical. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. And if you can say anything about the human race, in America, in the world you live in today, and you say, how does this wickedness go on? How does this wickedness go on? How does it go on? It's God's long-suffering. But know this, is that there is an end to it. Right? Let me keep going here. Verse 9, uh, But as long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Even in the tribulation, those folks got a chance. They got a chance. He's got... Uh, Moses and Elijah over there in Jerusalem, and they're, they're preaching. He's got 144,000 Jewish evangelists, and they're witnessing. He's got angels flying through heaven, and they're witnessing that nobody in the tribulation that's blaspheming God has any kind of excuse. They're, they're going to see things that you would look around and say, man, if I saw that, you know, I'd get on board. But you know what? How often have you read the Old Testament and read about a whole bunch of people uh, walking on dry ground through the Red Sea and thinking, man, if I saw that, I'd get on board. <laughs> You've got over there in Exodus chapter 20, the Lord speaks from heaven and gives those people ten commandments. And by verse 17, they said, you go talk to him. He said, we're afraid that, you know, we're afraid that he's going to kill us. You better go talk to him. Then Charlton Heston goes up on the mountainside, <laughs> not before, and goes and gets the ten commandments. What does that mean? That means that all of those... Stiff-necked people had no excuse when 40 days later they're popping out a golden calf. They had no excuse at all. They heard out of God's mouth, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. There was not a single person in that crowd that saw Moses come down from that mountain and was like, well, if you had told us before, we wouldn't have done it. No, God told them. And so the Lord gives them every chance. And he suffers them for somewhere between three and a half and seven years, whichever way you want to take it, of that tribulation, he long suffers them and he puts up with them. 
And you can say he puts up with him, but he puts him through all kinds of stuff with all kinds of plagues and turns the water to blood. And you got the sun gets about seven times hotter than it's want to be. And it doesn't rain on earth for that three and a half year span and all the other stuff that goes along with it. You got 200 million devils going around trying to get everybody over to Armageddon. And by the end of the whole thing, the Lord says, enough is enough. I'm done. You're out of chances. And he comes in, and that when he comes down, he sets foot on the Mount of Olives, and that thing splits in two, and he takes the king's highway uh, straight in through the valley of Megiddo where they're all stacked against him. And he speaks, and they, they turn to blood. They liquefy right there before him. And he marches through there, and he treads the fierceness of the wrath of God alone, and he treads that wine press of the fierceness of the wrath of God, and it's done. And by the end of it, he takes uh, the false prophet and the beast and uh, Satan and binds them up in uh, the bottomless pit for a thousand years. And whenever they come up at the end of the thousand years uh, to lead a rebellion against God after Jesus Christ has ruled and reigned with a rod of iron for a thousand years, and it takes four or five verses to talk about how they're the sands of the sea and they've got Jesus Christ completely surrounded, the Lord doesn't even spend an entire verse to say, and he brought fire down from heaven and consumed them. That's it done and he takes death and hell and he takes satan and he casts him into the lake of fire and it's done but the lord the lord will long suffer and he'll put up with it and you say well that's that's a picture of the tribulation yeah it's also a picture of a lost sinner today he'll put up with him and put up with him and put up with him and he'll put up with their rejection and he'll put up with their foolishness and he'll put up with their blasphemy and he'll put up with all of it but there's an end and everybody you know has an end where the Lord says, all right, it's done. I've given you every chance. I've put Christians in your path. Now, maybe not every Christian that you know spoke up like they should have, but listen, you're still responsible. Uh, you've got uh, that sun going through the sky every day, just a picture of Jesus Christ. You see him whenever uh, he comes up in the morning and he dies uh, every evening, uh, and he's renewed every morning, a picture of the resurrection. Uh, you've got uh, Jesus Christ being shown all throughout nature so that they which claim not, the Bible says that they are without excuse. You've never, there's not a person who's died and went to hell that had an excuse. You've never met one. You say, well, what about the heathen who never heard? I love talking with Brother Resmondo over there in Malawi, Africa, where you and I think the heathen who never heard live. And he went over, he lives there in Malawi, Africa, and they had a big revival meeting. And they're leading people to Christ. And, but you know what? He'd get some of those uh, Malawi Africans, and they'd come into that tent, and he'd give them the gospel. And you know what those Malawi Africans, you know those heathen would say? What about the heathen who never heard? They said that. I can only assume he's talking about Americans, <laughs> the heathen who never heard. They're not in Africa anymore. They're in Kansas City. They're in St. Louis. They're in Columbia. They're in Unionville, the heathen who never heard. Uh, make sure that they are without excuse. Get the gospel out. You know, it was amazing to me, like a, you know, I mentioned uh, Vacation Bible School, uh, both here and, and out at West. When you present the gospel to somebody, when you can get them to sit down and listen to it, I'm telling you it is amazing the people that will receive it. The problem is, is that Christians don't present it. And a lot of those people, they... They, they just, they don't come to church. And Brother Ionello put it 100% right that that preaching 
behind that pulpit, especially in the day and age in which you live, the preaching behind that pulpit is for you, the Christian. That outside those doors, that's for you to witness. People get saved out there and then come in. Now, every now and then, somebody will come in and get saved, but that's not the norm. You're going to have to go out and get them. You're going to have to go out and witness to them because eventually the long-suffering runs out and he'll suffer them no more. So throughout the tribulation, men don't get, it, uh, don't get any better. They get worse. Uh, the blood of God, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. I'm, I'll find some place to stop here in a little bit. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. The blood of God manifested by that bleeding lamb hanging on Calvary's cross did not change hearts. The Holy Spirit... The Blessed Comforter, who is purer than the fairest woman that ever walked across the face of the earth, uh, has been wooing the hearts of men and women for 2,000 years. You can read about her in Proverbs chapter 8. Amazing thing when you read Proverbs chapter 7 and Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 7, you have a harlot, and she calls, and men come. And you know what? In chapter 8, wisdom standeth in the gate, calling, calling, calling. The devil woos but so doesn't Christ. And he, uh, he yet is unable to do the work. Every gentle, refined influence of Bible Christianity, every gentle reminder of a Christian mother, a Christian home, and even church bells on Sunday morning, flowers at funerals and weddings, with the preacher preaching with a Bible in his hand, all these gentle, refined Western Christian influences for 2,000 years have failed to change the hearts of unbelieving men to renovate human nature. You can't change human nature. And now in the end time, as God pours out unsheeted hell upon the inhabitants of a Christ-rejecting, Bible-despising, religious world, because make no qualms about it, that in the tribulation, it is not an atheistic world. It is a highly, highly traditional religious world led by the Pope. And all of them are religious. Don't let them fool you. Uh, because they're all uh, as religious as Judas. And you say, well, what, you know, the, no atheism? I'll tell you this about atheism. It's just as religious, if not more religious, than Bible-believing Christianity. Yeah. The stuff that they claim that they believe, they've never seen. They take it on faith. <laughs> they read somebody else's book, right? Man still does not repent. He does not get right with hailstones weighing eight pounds apiece or 100 or 120 or whatever it is. Just as big a shame if it's a hundred and people don't get right. At some point, listen, haven't you gone through some hard times and you say, Lord, what's going on? I better get right. You ever go through a hard enough time that you got right? And you went down to the altar just because things around you were hard? Boy, I've, this, this, you know, crop season, thinking back, what was it, a couple months ago when we were desperate for rain. I, I kind of wondered, I was like, I wonder if some... Some people who really needed it said, man, God, is it me? Is it me? There's sometimes when things go wrong, you think, well, I don't know if it's me, but bless God, if it is me, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to make sure it's not me. I'm going to go get right. 
Sometimes when you need rain, you do stuff that you hadn't done in a while. Man, sometimes when you need rain, I'll just go wash the truck because almost every time <laughs> I'll go put the truck through the car wash and then six hours later, it wasn't even in the forecast. I checked the forecast before I took the truck and it's raining six hours later. There's sometimes, you know, listen, you ought to be quick to the altar just to make sure, Lord, I don't think it's me, but I'll tell you what, I want to go ahead and get right with you just in case it is. Yeah. And these folks don't get right with eight to 100 pound uh, ice bowling balls coming out of the sky with hailstones, uh, destroying gardens, crops, houses, automobiles, with the sun scorching the skin off their back, with the tongue swelling from pain, from thirst, with drinking nothing but blood for three and a half years, half-drug populations reeling across the earth, like it says in Revelation 9.21, rabid animals, uh, like you saw in that uh, Hitchcock's The Birds over there in Revelation 6.8, killing children. Man uses the tongue that God gave him to blast his son's name, and he goes right on worshiping sex, education, money, and science. And he'll go into hell that way. And that's the end of Revelation chapter 16. We'll close it right there.